exciting this morning to be walking together into this season of Lent, our first Sunday of the Lenten season as we are preparing as a community, our minds and our hearts for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to come, to celebrate that our God has come for us and to us and as we prepare our lives to receive his glorious resurrection. We are beginning a series on Colossians that we will be walking through in six weeks as we also prepare for Easter. But I want to begin and frame up Colossians with a story. A few years ago, my wife and I were looking at the backyard of our home and thinking about the plants that were back there. They were kind of dying and disheveled, and we wanted to redo it. So we decided we need new plants here. We need to kind of map this out. So we went to our favorite nursery in order to look at different plants, in order to kind of figure out which ones we wanted. While looking at them, we started a conversation with a very helpful older woman talking to us about plants. And she actually introduced us to a plant that we had never heard of before. She said, this plant, these little seedlings, if you buy these, someone else told me about them and I put them in my garden and it transformed it. If you put them in, they will spread throughout your garden area and they'll grow pretty quickly. At the top of them, we're going to be a beautiful flower, unlike something you've ever seen before, and it's going to bloom every season. It'll bloom in summer. It'll bloom in winter. You'll see it all seasons. In addition to the flower, underneath it is going to be this little fruit that you can eat that's delicious. You'll know the plant is ready when it produces this fruit underneath. So we take the seedlings back. We plant them. Sure enough, in about three weeks, the plants are up, beautiful fruit underneath it, and it transformed our garden. So we call her and we say, what actually is this plant? What's the history of it? What's happening? She says, it's a new plant. It's transforming gardens all over the world. You get to be a part of this new thing that's happening. Now, if you picked up on it already, this story didn't really happen. This is, you're like, what? What is this thing? It has flowers and fruit and it grows in winter. This is the idea of what Paul is teaching in Colossians. He's saying there's a new thing happening. I received it from somebody else who gave it to me. But if we plant this into our lives, if we embrace this, it will transform everything. And not just in your own life, but you get to be a part of a transformation that's happening, not just in your neighborhood, not just in your region, but across the whole world, you are part of something new that's bringing life and life in every season. In Colossians, this is one letter of several letters that Paul writes from prison. They're called his prison epistles. It's Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, a little book that um, a lot of people pass over. But these four letters Paul writes from prison. And you would think a lot of him writing from prison is him processing his faith and his suffering. But every one of them is a letter encouraging the people he's writing to. He is from prison. Maybe if he's writing them from the Roman prison, he dies in this prison, and yet his focus is on the other believers, what God is doing in their life, to stick with Jesus, how beautiful the work of the good news is. And in Colossians, he writes what scholars call a very high Christology, a very high study of Jesus and of Jesus Christ. He places him as the the pinnacle of power and beauty and lordship. It's the whole theme of these six chapters in this letter to the church in Colossae. We know that Colossians is written by study 
before 61 AD. We know this because in 61 AD, the town of Colossae is destroyed by an earthquake. So we know the letter had to be before that. We know it's Paul writing in this time frame because it didn't exist afterwards. And if someone was making up a letter, why would you make it up to a town that no longer exists? So we know it's early in the movement of the church. And it's early as little house churches are popping up all around the Roman regions of Israel and Turkey and Greece and churches are being planted. We also know that Paul doesn't know this community. He's never, he didn't plant this church. He's not a part of it. It's a house church, sort of an offshoot of another church that he planted in Ephesus. And as he writes to the people of Colossae, he is writing to a town that's fairly unremarkable. When we read Philippians, it has important strategic military value. It's an important town. When he writes to Ephesians, it's an important port town. Same with Corinth. So these are big towns with important value. The people of Colossae are not that. The the town was an important city about 100 years before this, but it's inroad now and there's other towns on the coast. And really the influence and the importance of this town and these people has shrunk. And so he's writing to a town of ordinary people. Ordinary people asking the questions that ordinary people ask. What gives my life purpose and value? How do I help provide for my family and and teach my children to be good people and love others? What is the meaning of my life? Why do I exist? What happens when I die? They're asking these questions that are very normal, very human questions. And Paul writes this letter to this small house church wrestling with very human questions in order to confront a couple of errors they've made in their journey and as they're processing it. The main one you'll see throughout this whole study that Paul's talking to them about is he had heard that the Colossians, the people of Colossae, had stopped believing that Jesus was enough. That somewhere in their study, somewhere in their life, somewhere in their trials, they knew that Jesus existed and the good news that he died and rose again, that he was God in flesh and he's ruling and reigning. But to them, all of a sudden it was, yeah, we do that and we go to church. Yeah, I hear the stories about Jesus' life. I try to pray, but it's just not, it's not working for me. And so they had added a few other practices to try and find that peace and meaning. And Paul addresses each of them throughout this letter. The first one is, they searched for what was known as special knowledge beyond the good news of Jesus. They had looked beyond the gospel and said, all right, Jesus has revealed these truths to us. He's helped us know the Father, but there's got to be something more, something that, 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 that we don't know and, and a secret knowledge beyond this, some special philosophy that wasn't revealed that we can keep searching for. And if we find that, we'll have peace in our lives. This special knowledge is known as Gnosticism, is an early church heresy. And in Gnosticism, we disconnect our spirit from our body. And we say, our body is bad, the earth is bad. And if I can just disconnect from this reality, if I can just transcend my suffering, I'll be better. Second thing we find is they had become dependent on emotionalism emotionalism in their worship experience. They needed it. Every Sunday, I I have to cry. If I didn't cry today, God didn't do anything in my life. And so I have to make sure I'm having emotional experiences and the preacher's got to really get there. They got to tell me a story. And in the story, there's a puppy and it lost a leg and I'm, I'm connecting with that and I'm getting emotional in it. If I'm not having that cathartic emotional experience, 
then Jesus isn't moving and working. And so they were trying to whip themselves up, create these experiences. And then third is they had become dependent on the religious rituals. I got to go every Sunday. I got to do Passover. I got to put these rituals into place. And we can actually see if you're making the connection, these three are very same, the three things we try to add on top of our faith too, when we're struggling and we feel like Christ isn't enough. I have to feel like there's, there's other wisdom out there. I have to add in other schools of thought and philosophy and wisdom in order to add to my Christian journey because you know the Bible doesn't, doesn't do it quite enough and it's old and it's, it's out of touch. I need to add more knowledge into this. Or it's emotional expression. I need this catharsis. I have to have that moment. Or it's just the rituals. I'll just keep on them, do them. Now, I don't think any three of these are bad things. Knowledge or emotion or rituals. I think all three serve their purpose in the Christian faith. What they had begun to do is to become dependent on them rather than the truth of who Christ was and is and continues to be. They can help enhance who Christ is and point us to him, but when they become our journey for salvation, that I need them, we're out of touch. This is what Paul writes this letter to the church in order to correct. Back to Jesus is enough. What he's done, what he is doing, what he always will do, that's enough. You don't have to make it or work it or manufacture anything. He's already done it all. Paul asked them, do you want a fruitful life? Do you want to be able to have peace in this life? Do you want to live and not die? It's in Jesus. And we need to return back to the doctrine, to the knowledge, to the reality of the person he is and what he's still doing. Jesus is a new living movement. And even today, 2,000 years later, the gospel, the good news, is a new living movement in us that spreads from person to person as we share about the beauty of what God is producing and doing in our lives through his son, Christ Jesus. Paul's advice throughout is do not waste your time toiling on things that are not of Jesus and will not point you back to Jesus. Don't try to manufacture it, work it, or do it. Embrace and reflect on who Jesus was and is. So let's see how Paul introduces this letter. Today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We'll start with verses 1 and 2. We'll read together. I'll be in the New Living Translation. Paul writes, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae. I don't know why the New Living Translation spells it that way. No one else does. Who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ? May God our Father give you grace and peace. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I used to think that Paul, when I read his letters, was arrogant. He'd be like, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, called by Jesus. Paul, you better listen to me. I am one of them. Until a scholar, N.T. Wright, and I read his letter on Paul, and he said, 
Maybe it's not that Paul's arrogant and trying to force people. Maybe it is that Paul genuinely is insecure of the fact that he wasn't one of the first 12 disciples, that he had been a part of a movement persecuting the church. And so all throughout, he's letting them know, like, I am one of you. We are in this together. Listen to me. I'm striving and yearning for this too. God's working in my life. Hear what I'm telling you. It's overflowing out of my heart. And the first thing Paul tells them is he, he calls them a holy people. You holy people in Colossae, we read holy now and we think about it through the terms of maybe growing up in Sunday school and thinking about church. And so we would think he's telling the people of Colossae, you are doing good work. You're, you're, you're avoiding sin. You're working to be more like Jesus. I'm so proud of you. You're being more righteous. But what holy means, and whenever we read Paul using it, or in the Old Testament, holy means to be set apart. And to be set apart is not something you do of yourself. It is done for you and about you. He's saying, you are already set apart. The moment you recognize Jesus, the moment you received his love, God set you apart to be his family. It's not something you're earning and doing and becoming. It is something you have been declared and given. And so I'm talking to you, the both of us, we didn't earn this or deserve this. God set us apart for it. And so let's walk what this journey looks like as God sets us apart for his work. He then calls them faithful brothers and sisters. He says, we're brothers and sisters in this. God is now our father through Christ Jesus. Jesus is our good, loving, older brother. And now you and I are family in this together. We have never met each other. We don't even know each other personally. But because of Christ, we are family. And this idea of being family is important because I think we can read the letters of Paul and we have these Bibles that we print or we have digitally in our hands. And, and the Bible is almost cheap to us in that there's billions of them. We have access to it so easy. And you read a letter to Paul and you're like, sure, I wrote a letter complaining to my local newspaper. I wrote a letter complaining. I write a lot of comments where I respond to people on social media. And it's very easy. And I'm not connected to them. I just get mad. So I write it. But for Paul to write a letter to a church that he's correcting, to a church that he's reaching out to because he's concerned of the direction they're going, is a lot of work in the ancient world. He has to get parchment, which is not cheap at the time. He has to get a pen and ink, or he has to get a scribe that he dictates to, who then records it down. He has to get a runner who then takes the scroll to the people, and the runner has to be literate because they then open the scroll, call everybody together in a meeting room, read it out loud. Then they answer a question and answer period about the letter, what Paul means by it. It is a big effort and a lot of work. These are the things we only do with family. When there's a rift between friends or coworkers, oftentimes we can just be like, bye, I won't talk to you anymore. I'm not going to work here anymore. I'm not going to come to that restaurant anymore. I'm not going to do it. But with family, I'm going to see you at Thanksgiving. I'll see you at Christmas. I'm going to see you at Easter. We might take a vacation together. But I know because of the blood that binds us, we have to work these things out. Paul's saying, because we are now brothers and sisters, I am going to work this out with you. And there are two things about family that I think Paul means in this. Number one is we don't choose our family. We don't get to choose them. We're born into them. 
Paul's saying, we don't get to choose each other. We don't get to choose each other in this church. I think it's actually one of the most damaging aspects of the church during the pandemic and all of our churches going online is it really made an aspect where we all could choose our churches. Oh, I don't really like that the pastor does this or I don't like that the church did that or this timeline. I'm gonna just choose another community. I'm gonna move into that one. But what Paul is saying, the church capital C, whatever denomination, church body, country, nation, time, whatever it is, we don't get to choose each other. We are brought together by God's grace. And we are in this, not just for our time on earth, but for eternity together. We are made together. And second is, we can't unfamily somebody. You can unfriend somebody. You can unfollow somebody. You can't unfamily someone. You can kind of try to, but you still, we both still have this same nose. We both still have these same memories. The same blood runs in our veins. We can't undo the connection that we have by being family. And so Paul says, we didn't choose each other, but we can't disconnect from each other. We didn't do it. We can't undo it. Christ has made us family. So we need to work this out. Or, as the modern prophet Dominic Toretto has said, no matter where you are, whether it's a quarter mile away or halfway across the world, you'll always be family. That's from Fast and the Furious. Okay, we don't choose our family. It is given to us, and that connection is blood and is eternal. Paul makes this connection here, but what makes us family by a phrase he uses over 140 times in his letters, because we are in Christ. All throughout Paul's letters, it's his most uh, recurring phraseology he uses, in Christ, by Christ, in Christ, with Christ. He says, we are family because we are now in Christ. We are in him. He is in us. We are eternally connected to the Son of God by his work on the cross and the resurrection. So what does this look like? We'll continue on. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Paul continues to teach the church of Colossae. He says, We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we see here actually how Paul does know this church and how he knows anything about them. So he says, we're family because of Christ Jesus' love, but in a more physical and literal sense, we're family because we both know Epaphras. We both love this guy. I've gotten to journey with him, hear God's wisdom and moving in his life, and he speaks highly of what God is doing in your community. He's saying the good news, our faith in Jesus has made us one, and I am so excited to talk and pray for this community that is bound together in the sharing love of Jesus. In verse five, he says, here hope is being established 
as a end times reality of what will happen in the kingdom in the future, but that it's already sealed in our hearts and in our lives. He's saying one day you will be in the kingdom and in the kingdom and the resurrection forever. And in time for our God who doesn't see time, that reality is already sealed in you. It's already the destiny for you that you can't change. He said you won't need to engage in these specific spiritual practices or by whipping yourselves up, feeling it more, repenting more, crying more. You won't do it by the rituals if you do them hour upon hour. If you have accepted the love of Christ Jesus and if you have asked him to guide you and to follow him all the days of your life, it is already sealed in you. It's already done in you and he's already made that work happen in you for you for eternity. Essentially, one of his themes in Colossians is to tell the church, relax and have peace in the work that Christ has already done for you. Stop trying to manufacture it and just understand that he's given it to you by his power. I believe in the altar. I do. I believe in the moment of coming to the front area of the church of praying and praying over each other. I even believe in emotional cathartic experiences. I believe they help us into breakthroughs of our spiritual life. Sometimes I need an emotional moment to shake me up out of the numbness I've been living in or the reality that I can overcome this sin or area in my life. And I need someone else to come alongside of me. Those are significant moments and experiences for us. But what Paul is saying is you do not need emotional experiences to have and embrace the love that Christ gives you. You don't have to. You don't have to have the breakthrough emotional experience someone else had. It could be a moment sitting in a congregation, a moment in your car, a moment in a small group where you realize God's love for you and that it's happening in you. That moment is transformational. And at moments of emotional breakthrough, they should always begin with the realization of what Christ has done for us. And those emotional moments should move us back into Christ again. It's not emotion for emotion's sake. As a youth pastor, I had a lot of experiences like this. I had literally a new student had come to Christ, had been a Christian for maybe about a year and came on a retreat with us. And I heard her on the phone talking to her mom at the end of the retreat. And she said, mom, it was so great. At one point I was crying and they were praying over me and they were crying and everybody was crying. It was wonderful. And I was like, oh, um, I think you're missing a key part of, of the motion of what led us to that. I remember praying for one student who wanted to come forward and receive more of the Holy Spirit. And so he was seeking the Holy Spirit. Specifically, he was seeking the gift of tongues of the Holy Spirit, working that miraculous work of him speaking a language he didn't know. And I was praying over him and my eyes were closed as I was praying and I just felt this uneasiness. So I opened my eyes to see like the most miserable looking person I've ever prayed over. He was like, and like sad and all this guilt on his face. And I felt the Holy Spirit tell me in that moment, like, no, 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 stop, just stop. And so I literally just stopped. I, like, I held his shoulders. I was like, open your eyes, open your eyes and look at me. I was like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Just, let's just chill out for a second. Like the Lord is not calling you to be a bur like a, for a burden of his presence or that you have to like a, it, 
punish yourself in order to receive him? I said, hey, let's tell you what, let's go over to the side of the room and let's just talk and let's pray about where you are and what God's doing in your life. And we did that for the next half an hour. Our emotions in the moment should be driven by what Christ has done for us. And the emotional moments should drive us back into what Christ is doing. They don't exist for their own sake or so that we feel them. Verse 6, Paul continues on. He says, it's for you, but it's happening all over the world. And I think many of us in the modern church need to hear this reality of what Paul is saying. Is He's saying, it's for you, but it's not about just you. You get this beautiful thing. You get this treasure that you're holding in your body. You get this eternal crown, but it's not just you. This is something that God wants for all of his children that he has created. This is something God wants for all of us in Mercer County, in New Jersey, in the United States, and his entire planet from the beginning of creation to the end. It is a plan that he has had for all of his children. And he says, the work I'm doing in you, do not forget that this is a work I'm doing everywhere. And that there are Christians in Uganda working this out. And it may look different than it does in your church. There are those working in Thailand and God's working it out. There are those working up in Seattle. And it may look different from those working down in Alabama. But it is the same Christ working in us. He is doing it everywhere at the same time. And we are called into that experience and moment. Into verse 8. He says, and I have heard of the love of for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. This is what Epaphras has told them. He said, you know, they're off on these areas and they're maybe getting into these weird emotionalism things and some of them are moving into this Gnostic wisdom. But I'll tell you, Paul, they're really loving people. They are. They are. They're working it out and they're trying their best to love their neighbors, to love their community, to love each other. And I do believe I can see the Holy Spirit working in them to produce this. This is why Paul writes letters. He doesn't write letters to churches he's given up on that are falling apart and have lost it. He writes them to ones where he genuinely sees God doing a great work, but there are moments of miscalculation. And he says, you can do this. You can do this. You can achieve it. You can move it. God's working in you. We can see, and for many of us, and specifically for those probably under the age of 30, and I get asked actually to, to speak on this or to share with others about um, what we now call deconstruction or exvangelicalism, where you can look at the last few years and be like, I'm pretty frustrated with what the church has done or how leaders had led or, you know, Bill Hybels and Carl Lentz and Ravi Zechariah. And I've seen these names and I can see what people are posting and doing and I'm really frustrated with it. And I just kind of want to bow out. I want to move out of it. I'm, I'm done with it. What Paul would say is, no, into those moments, there is still always more good that the Holy Spirit is doing in the church than there is evil. And I'll also say, if you are wrestling with that and you think about what the church is now and you're like, boy, it's really dark, I will tell you that in the run-up to the Reformation, they found out that other pastors were thinking about some of these ideas. They went in, they grabbed them all and threw them out the windows in order to kill them. So it's not so bad as it's been in the church in times past. No one's gotten thrown out of a window as far as I know. Venestration, it's called. All right, into that, Paul's saying, I heard that you're still able to be loving. I heard that that's the key of who you are and that in it, it's because of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you. We talked about this in our Trinity series. We cannot love enough without God's presence moving and working in us. 
And as we discover more of Christ, he makes the transformation in us to be more loving, to be more patient, to be more gentle and kind and self-controlled. He does that, not us. Our call, as Paul is saying throughout, is to seek the presence of Jesus and to seek his spirit in us. And by them, we become more loving. As Scott McKnight says about reading the Bible, he says, when they asked Jesus, what is this whole Old Testament about? He said, it's about loving God and about loving others. And if you know the Bible really, really well and can quote all of it and can dissect it and put it all together, but you're not a loving person, then the method of how you're reading it is probably wrong. If the way you read scripture is not making you more loving, generous, and kind, then you're missing the whole point of the book and you're missing the character of Jesus at the center of it. Paul continues, 1 Colossians 1, verse 9. And so we have not stopped praying for you since we heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. A theme you can find in all of Paul's letters we often miss. Paul begins by talking about praying for them. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for this good work. I'm praying for God's direction in your life. Paul rarely ever prays for two things we pray for most often. He rarely ever prays for a physical healing in that church body. He just doesn't. Doesn't pray for that in them. Doesn't pray for healings. There are slight moments he talks about it. Epaphras is actually one who almost died at one point. But by and large, that's a lesser issue for Paul. He doesn't pray for prosperity for them in their homes. He doesn't pray that they'll get that next job or that the persecution of Rome would end in their community. He doesn't pray for those things. What he prays over and over again is that they would come to the knowledge of God's depth of love for them. I pray that you would realize with greater depth the love he has for you. I pray that you would come alive in the wisdom of what he has called you to be. I pray that you would come to know him more deeply and richly in your lives. He prays that those who don't yet know Jesus would come to know him. And he prays that those who do know Jesus would come to know him more deeply and more richly. Or as we say, leading people to Jesus. Paul is directly connecting at the same time that the reality of the gospel has an actual product in your life. It does something, it affects something, it transforms something in us. It's not just a head knowledge or a changing of our perspective. He says it does something in you. It does something in us. On your daily basis, he's writing this to these ordinary people trying to love their kids, trying to provide for their families, trying to have peace in an anxious world. He says, if you can more greatly understand God's love for you in Christ Jesus, if you can focus your life on the reality that he has conquered death and forgiven you of all sin, 
that he has called you into his family, that he would be with you forever. This will have an outpouring of consequences in your life. If you are anxious about work, whether you'll get that promotion, be able to provide for your family. If you wonder, I'm in my 30s now and my career doesn't seem to be moving forward. What am I gonna do with my life? He says, if you meditate on the provision and goodness of Christ, you will know that your value doesn't come from the upward ladder mobility of your life, that you are valued and you are loved in Christ Jesus. And you can work and search out of that fullness. If you're worried about my kids, will I provide for them? Will they grow up to know God the way I know them? He says, if you pour into the love of Christ and have that reality pouring out of you, your kids will see it in you. They will know the love that you have been searching for and yearning for in Christ Jesus. And his Holy Spirit will be able to guide them forward and care for them more than you ever do or could. Basically, they ask him fundamental questions. Paul, what do I do about peace? Where I go when I die? Paul says, seek Christ and seek the resurrection he has for you. They say, all right, well, how do I know if that's working? If he's producing fruit in your life and you're becoming a more loving person, then it's working. And then what about seek Christ? But how do I, if you're becoming more loving? All right, well, what about seek Christ? But then how do I, if you're becoming more loving? Over and over again. The solution to the problem is Jesus. The knowledge of him working is the outpouring of his love through us. Finally, Paul closes it out with this famous two verses. I'll reread them. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. That is the good news. That is the gospel message. When we read Paul, there is a real reality of a deep, rich knowledge of the good news. And it's not just that we're sinners saved by Christ, but it is that our lives have value. That God, the creator of all things, the righteous one, the father himself, had reached into the dirt and molded humanity, breathed his very breath into us because he values each of us who we are that you're important. We matter to the creator of the universe and we matter so much that his son in Christ Jesus would come to this earth to teach us what it is to live in the Father's presence, how to love those who we deem unlovable, how to forgive those who have hurt us deeply, how to heal the parts of the world that are broken and falling into destruction. And then he demonstrates our value so clearly and so powerfully by taking our own sin and death and brokenness onto his very body on the cross and dying in our place. But then it doesn't end there because he rises from the grave and Christ Jesus puts to death death itself 
and says, you will not have to fear it. Each of us, our flesh, and we will have to face our earthly death. We will, and that will hurt, and that's not God's plan. But if we trust in the resurrection, we know that when we close our eyes to this reality, we open them into eternity with a God that has loved us and made us and is working in us. And that one day, Jesus Christ will return. He will bring heaven and earth as one. And he will eliminate all pain, disease, war, and brokenness. And we will live in paradise along with Christ because Jesus Christ is the ruler of all things. He is king over all creation. He is ruler over what is right and what is wrong. He is ruler over where there is justice and injustice. He is the healer of all things and we submit into his lordship and power. In the opening to this letter, And next week is a beautiful, powerful passage about Jesus Christ as the creator of all things. But in this opening invitation, Paul says, if you have known Jesus Christ, if you call on him as Savior and Lord, you are now connected to the creation and work he has always done. You are connected to the restoration work he is going to do. And you are connected to life eternal, overflowing and growing out of you in this present moment now. And how do I know that? His spirit lives in you and produces a love you would not be able to do on your own. And so what do we do? We pursue Christ Jesus. How do I know that it's working? He's making you a more loving person in the model of himself. If you'll close your eyes and pray with me this morning. If you're in the room today and you would not say that you have a thriving, life-giving relationship with Jesus, or you're like, I'm not sure that I do, I want to give you a chance just to pray a prayer to make that clear. To take a clear step of asking Jesus Christ to be your Savior, your Lord, and your God. If you are a follower of Jesus, as Paul would say, Take this as a moment to press in. Take this as a moment to seek more of him. To say, God, I know this much of your love. I know this much of who you are, Christ Jesus. But in this season, in my life, will I know you more richly and more completely? Will you draw me into your presence? You'll pray this prayer with me. Jesus, we believe in you. And in this moment, we declare you are enough. And Jesus, may we turn our hearts, our minds, and our lives towards you and your loving presence. Jesus, we believe that you are God, eternal, the only begotten Son of the Father, And that through you all things were made, but that you put on flesh and lived and walked among us. And that as God and man, you took our sin and burden onto your own shoulders and you died in our place. I believe that you were buried in the ground and on the third day, Jesus, you rose and conquered death and sin. And that you sit at the right hand of the Father 
and that you rule and reign, moving this world through your spirit, moving your church, us, through your spirit to bring order to where there is chaos, to bring healing to where there is brokenness, that one day you will return and we will see all healed and heaven and earth made one through the power of you, Jesus. You gave your life for us. In this moment, we commit our life to you. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'll invite you to stand in this moment and the worship team is going to lead us in one more song. We will open up this altar space. If you need to take a step forward and you want more of that Christ in your life, I want to focus my heart, my mind on him. We invite you just to step forward and pray that or sing it out this morning as we just allow God to focus us on all that we need in Christ Jesus this morning.